Let us continue to deconstruct this woman. By now we know she's the false church. I want to remind you that in Jesus' teachings, in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, he describes a great falling away which unmistakably is a separation between those who have retained a faithfulness to the original intent by a valid, vital, and unshakable connection to the head. So you must be in the body to be connected to the head. If you're part of the body of Christ, your connection to the head gives the head a position of absolute authority and there is no member of that body that has autonomy vis-à-vis the head or the body. Now that requires a level of maturity that recognizes that you cannot become who He has designed you to be by way of a carrier of His presence as an individual. One of the shocking things about uh, this current environment, both of the nations and of the church among the nations, is the belief that everything about the scriptures supports individual choice. And in that sense, you may understand that the nature of the the world, those who do not believe in Christ, that they desire autonomy and every group will only associate with people of a similar belief but it's in the furtherance of their individual choices. Now, it's not rocket science. When that happens, they divide society into constituencies. Sometimes those constituencies are ideological. Other times they're both ideological and race-based. You say, oh, that's a stretch. No, not a stretch at all. Just read the Bible and believe it. Jesus says, nation shall rise against nation. The word nation is the word ethnos, ethnic, race. Jesus prophesied 2,000 years ago that the end of the age would be characterized by divisions on the basis of race. Other things as well, but race is a primary divider and Jesus said that this would be the thing, a definitive thing that would even lead to wars and rumors of wars at the end of the age. 
So we have a church that is trying to offer solutions to the world that does not include the very things Christ has said because this is a woman who sits upon a beast. Let's look at it. So we first, we, we said, the Spirit carried him away, carried John away into the wilderness and that's where we stop. I saw a woman sitting on a beast. So we use the first of these summary pieces to connect the woman where we find her, where we last saw her. We last saw her in the wilderness where she fled and where a place was prepared for her. But in the wilderness, things did not remain static. She was not, for example, like an Elijah by the brook of Kedron, fed by ravens. No, no, in the wilderness, she was compelled to choose between an identity associated with the son whom she, to whom she had given birth and the father upon whose throne the son was, was uh, established and to submit to the lordship of the son and to the lordship of the father. But instead, she would not come to the feast slightly analogous to the, the discourse between Jesus and Mary at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee where she tried to uh, suggest what he might do, requiring him to establish his independence from her, not in any manner disrespectful but she was pulling upon and emphasizing his natural lineage, namely that he was her son and he would make the matter redundantly clear. And this is not a suggestion as to Mary rejecting Jesus. Uh, we, we don't know what happened to Mary but we do know that the angel greeted her with great favor told her God had given her such excessive favor. But again, I'm, I'm not going there except to show that when the Son of God is, whenever anyone attempts to identify the Son of God by His connection to human flesh, Son of Man, He will resist Son of Man defining Son of God. And Paul would pick up on the subject and would say, from now on we know no one any longer according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's why it's absolutely a false flag uh, to talk about Jesus as a Jew. Messianic Judaism is an entirely false flag because it's the Judaism that's special that's his flesh. He would reject it utterly by referencing the Spirit. 
Paul would say, no one, no, no one any longer according to the flesh. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. See, there are two ways to be born. You may be born of the flesh, but you must be born again of the Spirit if you're going to be a son of God. You can't be a son of God by reference to your flesh. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. And these are the normal designations of human beings. Jesus would answer the question when some of his disciples said to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. And, and uh, in the normal human um, responses, if some great speaker is in, <clears throat> is in town and speaking, uh, if his family shows up, they would usher them right in, they would move people off the front row uh, or, or even from the platform and put them up there. Jesus would say, who are my mother and my brothers except he who does the will of God? There's no question, there's not a shadow of doubt as to where Jesus places the priority. The priority is with those who are born of God as opposed to those who are born of, of human flesh. Now the woman, the woman, the false church, continues to look to relationships to the natural to determine its leadership. So whoever is connected to, whoever is connected to, whoever is connected to, then that's the line of succession. That's earthly, carnal, sensual, devilish. We watch ministries routinely go down the tubes because the leader of the ministry promoted his children when they were horribly unqualified and not called by God, but it was a family business. So this idea of the woman in the wilderness emphasizing the natural over the spiritual and that becoming the undoing is, is predictable. Now as we, as we consider and think about these things, the thing I want you to recognize is that although the woman may have favor at one point, the wilderness requires her to choose and choose in all these particular manners, in all these ways. Man does not live except by the dictates of God. Every other motivation is fueled by the desire for survival. Now because that caught up with the woman in the wilderness and because a different kind of approach to her uh, was made, here is the result. 
the kings of the earth, you see, she had now become a great harlot. And the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. I'll come back and comment on that. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and we've talked about that, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and such. Well, let, let me go back and comment on some of these. First, we find the woman in the wilderness, and when we find her, her harlotry has been fully engaged. What do you mean? The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the people of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, were drunk with the wine of her fornication. So comments on both. Why would the kings need her? I mean, kings supposedly have their complete pick of whomever they wish to marry. Normally it's considered a privilege to be married to a king. So a king should not typically be find the choice of finding a wife to be especially arduous. But there's something about this that makes her attractive. And it is that she claims to be, she claims to be of divine origin. And kings, in order to subjugate their populations, need to be able to reach up beyond their own humanity and connect themselves to some form of divinity. We saw the Romans do that and the Babylonians before them do that. The fawning satraps of Nebuchadnezzar's court uh, suggested that because he was so accomplished militarily that he should make a representation of himself and require all the nations from whom he had brought captives to the central city of Babylon to bow down to this image which is the alter ego or the alternative presentation of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And we know that the spirit of Babylon was the spirit that sought to destroy legitimate faith and replace it by, with faith in a man. So kings need that. Constantine gave the imprimatur of the state church uh, to the church because there was a way for him to rule an, an empire that was quite vast by the time he gave this imprimatur of being the state church.
In the same way, uh, Charlemagne is credited with legitimizing uh, the reestablishment of the Holy Roman Empire out of the classic Roman Empire. Charlemagne is undoubtedly the father of modern Europe and indeed it's not subtle, these things aren't subtle. If you visit the Vatican, and I've mentioned this before, when you enter the front portal of the Vatican, you will see two statues of men on horses. When you're, when you're entering the front portals, the one on the left is Constantine and the plaque on it says so. And the one on the right is Charlemagne and the plaque on the statue says so. These aren't Sam Solon inventions. I just happened to see them in person, being there. And anybody going there may verify that. In fact, you don't even have to go there, you can Google and, and the pictures will come up. I'm just calling it out. The wilderness experience makes the woman an opportunist. When she does not choose submission to Christ, she cannot be the bride. There's a distinction between a bride and the activities of a bride and a harlot. They're similar activities but different hearts. The bride is known for submission and her hope is to be reconciled to the husband as one. The picture of God's reconciliation to man, which is, which is what God invented to show that truth. If you will listen, if you'll read Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives, Christ also loved the church, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, and so on. Behold, I show you a mystery, but I'm not, uh, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church, the vehicle for which is the relationship between a husband and a wife. So the hope of the bride is conformity to the standard of the husband, and that requires obedience. The interest of the harlot is that she provides the favors of a wife, such as sexual favors, but she never gives her heart to her husband and she has no hope ever of being one with him. Enormous distinction, especially as it regards re retaining her independence. Even when the church became the prostitute of the state, she wanted her price and has acquired power and goods as for her service, but the kings acquired illegitimacy in the eyes of their population not to be confused with the legitimacy in the eyes of God, 
for such a thing can never occur. But in the eyes of their population, it was a weapon for their subjugation. I mean, consider right now uh, the the, uh, Russian Orthodox Church. It's the main supporter of Putin's ambitions to be the the modern Tsar, to be Peter the Great or whomever he models himself after. I doubt that he wants to model himself after Stalin, a more romantic figure perhaps like Peter the Great, but still the same thing. You require the state church to subjugate the minds of a population that are members of the state church in order to legitimize unspeakable ambition and brutality. And they have, I mean, they have the gall to present that to the world. We're not talking about antiquity now. We're talking about principles of antiquity that have remained unbroken in their applications and unchanged in their intentions up to the present moment. It's not something different. It simply grows in intensity and becomes a worldwide phenomenon. In America, explain to me exactly what the attraction of a man of extreme um, filth, that attraction to the evangelical church, to the the tune of like 80% of the evangelical church voting for him. I mean, how do you explain these things? Oh, I know how they try, but again, all it evinces is a disconnection from the standard of Christ. They want what they want and the kings want what the kings want. This is not a marriage made in heaven, it's not even a marriage, it's a bed of fornication. What's astonishing to me is how it swept the board it swept the board of the prophets. Who who knows now what the Elijah list is or who cares? They've all been compromised. Who cares about the seven mountains and the proponents of it? These have gotten in bed with political leaders and a political party. Are they one with them? Well, if you join yourself, whoever joins himself to a harlot becomes one flesh with a harlot. That's easy enough to identify. That's why the words that they're speaking are as dry as sand. But it appeals to a mentality in the church, in the evangelical church, that wants the security and predictability of an economy in which they're fully invested.
They're in a wilderness. And the wilderness is where falling away occurs. Because the wilderness requires you to decide whether or not you're going to trust God and do so actively, or if you're going to be apathetic. Oh, I understand. Saying these things doesn't... It's not like that one day they said, we're going to be a harlot. No, it's more of a resulting condition of apathy. Disobedience, where the voice of God means nothing to you. In fact, you've become so deceived that the voice of your own fears and ambitions is conflated with the voice of God. Now when that happens, note the result. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, having a cup, having in her hand a cup full of the abominations and She she in fact, abominations and filthiness of her fornication, and upon her forehead was written the name, mystery, and so on. She was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Christ. Now, let's distinguish a couple of things here very quickly. Number one, she, had the, she was ostentatiously clothed in the spoils of her harlotry. Having wealth was her motivation, because wealth provides independence. But this kind of wealth, you see, has to look like royalty. So she's clothed in scarlet. Her consortion with the beast is going to be our next interest, point of interest. The populations of the earth comprise of kings and people, and this nexus between kings, harlot, and the people produced great wealth for everybody. So it's an economic arrangement. That is why when she described variously as a woman on the beast or a great city. And we'll, we'll speak to those distinctions. When she uh, is destroyed, the nations of the earth mourn because she is so connected that she's part of the fuel for this commerce that allows the beast to absolutely control, so much so that you could neither buy nor sell. When I come back, we want to look at the connection between the woman and the beast. I'm Sam Solon. We'll continue this discussion. See you then.